The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we're actually about to conclude this section on uh, a rule of life. Uh, We'd gotten through some of it, uh, and simply talking about um, going towards a prayer prayer of life, a rule of life. Um, It is this discipline by which I order my worship, work, and leisure as pleasing sacrifice to God. Um, If if you're like me, you you struggle to balance work, life, uh, work, worship, and leisure. (laughs) Uh, It's either all work and no worship, no leisure, or all leisure, no work, no worship, um, or as has been the case with many people that I've I've spent time with in the past, it's all worship, no work, no leisure. Um, They seem to love to pray. They seem to go do this all the time. It's not a very common problem, but it does happen, and and they actually find that prayer actually wears them out um, over time. They need to take time for leisure. I'm reminded that... um, some of the most ascetic monks in the world at uh, this monastery up in the French Alps, uh, which is the, the, the Carthusian Charter House. Uh, it's this amazing place. Every single one of the monks is basically a, a hermit six days a week. And on Sundays, they actually gather in the chapel. So the rest of the time, they're just sitting in their, they're like little uh, townhouses that they live in, uh, but they're not that nice. <laughs> it's just like dirt floors, wood-burning stoves, all of that. On Sundays, they come together in community, and they, and they uh, take time to go for a walk together. Um, they take time for leisure. Uh, but the rest of the time, it's strict work and prayer, and that's it. <laughs> but they have time for, for leisure. Um, this is necessary. It's, it's, how, uh, it's how actually creation works. It's how God made things to work. Um, you think about what we're doing today as a Sunday. It's a day set aside for worship and leisure. Um, and uh, most people will not work on Sundays, although some will. Um, but the, the spirit of it is that if you, if you work yourself seven days a week, you'll wear out and you won't be able to continue on. And, and, uh, and it's just never, never really a good thing. Um, many employers are getting this today. They're offering sabbaticals to their employees, uh, which is a great thing and it should continue. Um, because you need regular rest, um, even in the more broad sense, um, time to, to uh, study, to, to think, to think about what's next. Uh, they find actually in research that if, 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 a, if like an employee at a high level professional job goes on for more than seven years without a considerable three to six month break, they'll start to have disillusionment in their, in their vocational calling. And they'll start to say, why am I still here? Why am I still doing this? Uh, if they get time to rest, they'll come back to it and say, oh, I know why I'm still doing it. <laughs> I love this. Uh, but, but it takes that time to, to really take a break, and it's worth the investment. Um, so those are just some thoughts on that. I think that uh, we, we have a tendency as Americans to put more emphasis on work and leisure than worship, for sure. Definitely more work than leisure. And, uh, and part of a rule of life will tell you how to do that. Um, part of our family rule of life is... Uh, to go on family retreat every year. So uh, in, in the middle of July, we're going to pack up. We're going to go up to Wisconsin. We're going to spend uh, 
uh, four and a half, four and a half, almost five weeks in prayer and uh, and, and retreat as a family, and, and that's something that's necessary to us. <laughs> we didn't have it last summer because of COVID, and it's killing us right now. So it's just something to kind of keep in mind that uh, this is really uh, one of the great joys of a rule of life is you can actually tell your time what you're going to do with it. Um, so uh, I want to start today with question 255 and asking why prayer is an essential part of the rule of life. So why is prayer an essential part of a rule of life? Through prayer, I rely upon God for strength, wisdom, and humility to sustain and guide me in my rule of life. Without the love of God and the power of his spirit, I will not attain to the fullness of Christ. Uh, Romans 8 talks about the, uh, attaining to the fullness of the stature of Christ, right? Which is sort of an interesting thing. It's, it's, um, it's kind of like a phrase that you'd use uh, for a child growing into the full stature of their mother or their father. Uh, but here, Paul uses it to talk about growing into the full stature of Christ. Like how, it's not just to be as tall as he is. <laughs> it's, it's to be as uh, grown up as he is, right? as, as mature as he is. Um, and the reality of it is that, uh, that what, what is, well, think about this. What is, what is the life of Jesus before the Father? What is it like? What is it like? It's a life of prayer and certainly a life that's, the life of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not any other life. Like it's not like he gets up in the morning, and makes himself a cup of coffee, right? Um, it's it's a life of prayer. Um, now it's interesting to note that he does have a body, right, <laughs> at the right hand of the Father. So you know, I don't know. Maybe he does like coffee. <laughs> um, but but the point is that uh, that uh, th- this life is primarily a life of prayer. It's primarily a life of, of a life in the Spirit. Um, and so this is, this is an, an essential thing. Um, in fact, it, it's Jesus' life, um, it's, it's his pneumatic life, right? This is one, that's a theologian's way of saying the, the spiritual life. It's, it's pneumatic. It's, by the way, pneuma is the word for spirit in Greek. And that's where we get the word pneumatic tool, right? It's, a, it's an air-powered tool. It's powered by something you can't see. Um, he, he lives uh, in the glory of the Father by the, by the Holy Spirit, um, and is constantly, uh, uh, and this is quoted the, the, the general sense in, in Western theology, is that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? But also the Son in the West, we speak of double procession. And the idea here is that Jesus is so living the life of the Holy Spirit before the Father that he um, sends the Holy Spirit to his church, which is his body, right? So it's this kind of like incredibly mystical uh, idea, but, but, it's, but it's, I think it's the truth. Um, that that this is this is Jesus' life, and and without entering into that life of prayer and the life of the Holy Spirit, we cannot become like Christ. Period. Um, there, and really, in reality, there's no way to will yourself to be like Christ. There's no way. I mean, you can say, "I'm going to try harder." Um, this is this is in fact the funny thing about things like um, I remember in high school reading the autobiography of Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin. Did you ever read this? It's kind of a fun little book. But he, he decides that he's going to apply himself to, to moral virtue, kind of in the enlightened, uh, you know, sense that a colonial gentleman would. Uh, and it's, it's, it's funny to watch because he, he's, he's undertaking this kind of um, self-powered uh, act. And he keeps track. Now, as you may know, Benjamin Franklin was not a particularly virtuous man. Like, <laughs> but but he's, he's doing this kind of like feign of trying. And, 
And, uh, and of course, it's a disaster because it's not, it's not powered by the life of grace. Um, for the Christian, uh, you know, no amount of kind of you know, moral self-improvement is enough. The, the Christian life has to be rooted in prayer. It has to be rooted in the life of the Holy Spirit. Or uh, it quickly devolves into this kind of Pelagian exercise of, well, I'm just going to try to make myself morally perfect. Um, you know, it's funny, actually, that historically, much of American moralism is actually tied directly to um, uh, American colonial ideas about the moral life, um, particularly. And, and Puritans did not think this way uh, in the, on the continent. They, did not, or they didn't think this way in, uh, in Europe, but they, they wound up thinking this way in America. And they took on these ways of godliness that were sort of like, you have to really, you know, make a list and check it twice and uh, find out who's naughty and nice that way. <laughs> and, uh, but the reality of it is that, that uh, that's, that is seeped into the American consciousness. We have this idea that um, certain things are good and certain things are bad and, and good Christians don't do this, but they do this and they don't do this and they do this. And, uh, and, and part of the problem is that it's, uh, it's a kind of moralistic idea of, Christianity that um, really does divorce uh, us from this idea of um, God's grace working in us, which is to, to build us up to the stature of Christ. That's the, that's the, um, that is the idea in Romans. All right, so let us just pray the Lord's Prayer at the end of it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump right into the Ten Commandments today, turning to page 91. Um, in all of Anglicanism and going back even further, it was understood that Christians should memorize the Ten Commandments. I know this is a novel idea. Many have not. Uh, I remember this wonderful... Uh, you know Stephen Colbert? Love Stephen Colbert. It's this bit that he did where he, he was asking this congressman who had proposed placing a Ten Commandments monument on Capitol Hill. He was interviewing him. And of course, it was before Stephen Colbert was well known, so this congressman had no idea who he was. And he was like, um, Congressman, what are the Ten Commandments? He said, you want me to name them? <laughs> and then he, he just sort of like, he, he completely botched it. He, was, he could name three of the Ten Commandments. Um, so this is a, an ongoing issue that Christians are like, well, you need to have the Ten Commandments. We need to know and they just don't know what they are. It's like, well, um, you should know what they are. And I've, in fact, failed uh, ordination examinees for uh, not knowing the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and for right reason. I mean, they shouldn't be ordained if they don't know the Ten Commandments. Like, that's a really basic thing to know. Uh, but let's, let's recite them. Number one, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Okay, you want to know a really easy way to remember these? It's like really, really, really simple. Okay, so... One God, which is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me, just one God. Um, you shall not make for yourself any idols. So that's kind of an extension of this next one. You, sh you really have to memorize the first four. It just doesn't really work any other way. Um, 
you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So it's, it's, it goes from God's identity as one God to the disaster of idolatry to the exaltation of the name of God to this remembering of the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. So you just kind of have to just remember those four. Um, but here it goes. Okay. Honor your father and mother. That's, that's, that's the transition between the first four and the later five. Okay. Um, and the transition is there, uh, uh, we think, because, um, well, it's always, a, it's always a problem in human society to dishonor father and mother, right? Uh, destabilized societies very quickly uh, actually devolve into patricide. Um, you, kill your, you kill your own father. Why would you kill your father? You're tired of being under his thumb. You're tired of having to do his bidding. You're tired of having to uh, serve your father. So you kill him. Um, and it often happens the same way with the mother, right? <laughs> so the mother consumes your life, and so you rebel. Um, but in, in Jewish society, the understanding is that, um, that you should honor or defer to father and mother. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk more about this as we go on, but it's basically this transition because um, really the, the reality of it is that the way that you think about your mother and father is the way you think about God. We know this, um, very important. Okay. You shall not murder. So we're going in order kind of here. There's, a, there's an order of seriousness. And, and a lot of people don't like to say that because they think, well, you know, all, all sin is bad, you know. Well, yes, of course, obviously. But we actually go from the worst to the least. And you'll see how this progresses. Murder, adultery, steal, uh, bear false witness against your neighbor. So, um, you know, just think about it, right? What's, what's worse, to steal? or to lie about something. And a lot of people are going to say, well, it's to lie. No, 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 it's, it's to steal. Because, and here's why. Um, and, and you, you know, law students know this, right? Property is important in law, why? Yeah, it, it's sort of like the basis of civil society, right? The whole basis of civil society is property. Um, well, why is that? The, the, the reality of it is that it's, it's how we actually maintain boundaries, personal boundaries between where I end and where you begin, right? So a theft is a violation. If you ever talk to somebody who's had, who's had their house robbed, what do they always say? They say, I just feel so violated. It's like, well, there, there's a reason for that. It's because theft is a violation of of you as a person, um, and uh, and yes, to be lied to is bad, um, but but there's not this kind of violation that goes on, and especially in um, more traditional societies uh, uh, that don't deal in information like we do, uh, to steal someone's property is a real problem because um, they've by and large worked for that deeply, they've they've sacrificed for that, um, and uh, and you've taken from them what is not yours. Um, so, sometimes we have to just sort of smooth that one over and say, like, why is it more important to, why is this one more, more severe than the others? Um, and then finally, you shall not covet. Now, it's interesting to note also that covetousness is often divided into two commandments. One, covet your neighbor's wife. So there's this kind of like coveting that leads to adultery and also coveting that leads to theft. But if you think about that enough, you can sort of say, oh, well, now I understand how the, ord how the ordering goes, right? It's adultery first, then this, then this steal, right? Because covetousness refers to both. So you can sort of get that order there. 
in that way. I know there's some hand movements and things like that, but I don't do that. Um, but that's, that's, that's how you kind of memorize it. You memorize the first four and then you just start working through the others. Um, but there is an order, there's an order to them. Okay, so let's keep moving. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law. What is God's law? God's law, Hebrew Torah instruction, is God's direct pronouncement of his will, both for our good and for his glory. This is a wonderful Packerite sort of statement. Jim Packer definitely would say something like this. Um, but, and he definitely did write this. <laughs> but but it's, it's something like this, that um, the law, and by the way, the Torah in the Hebrew understanding is actually the first five books of the Bible entirely. So if you ask a Jew, like, what's the law? They'll tell you it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. So the law actually includes things like the story of Adam and Eve, the story of creation, the story of Noah and the ark, the story of uh, Abraham. Um, why would it include Genesis? Genesis says nothing about the law, by the way. It's like introductory material, right? We Americans are not good about this because we don't think in these terms. We think far more in rational terms about law. But in an ancient society, the founding of the nation is the same story as, the, as, the, as their law. So there's a tight relationship between their mythology and their, uh, and their legal world. Okay? So their legal thinking is tied to their mythology. In the, in the Jewish world, the idea is that God has, uh, has, has brought forth a nation uh, by his will and has endowed that nation with a law of his own giving. So if you were to think about another ancient nation, they would say, well, we were brought forth by the king, the great king, whatever it was, and he gave us a law. So, you know, the, 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 um, the, the great old law of the Babylonians, the, what is it called, the Codex um, Hammurabi, yeah. Um, well, where did Hammurabi come from? The king Hammurabi, right? who gives it to his people as a gift to establish them as a nation. So the law is the gift of God in establishing a nation for himself. That's basically what it is. Um, and so it's absolutely tied to the, uh, to the story of how it is that Israel came into existence. Um, so all of that is there. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the things that I'm open enough about thinking about the Bible to be open to these, you know, kind of ideas, but, but it's, it's bigger than that, right? The story of Eden is the story of Babylon. It's this idea of everything keeps happening over and over again. We, you know, we go into exile. We get, you know, um, we're we're put out in in the garden, and it's and where is the garden? Well, it's east, right? So it's the east is what from Jerusalem. Well, it's there's a big desert, and then there's Babylon, basically. Um, so that's the that's the reality that's being spoken of there. Um, but it's instruction, and the idea is that it's meant to be taught to children. You teach the law, right? Now, if you've ever taught children, and you know this, you know this better than anybody. It's like, if you want to teach somebody a language, how do you do it? Just say it. That's right, yes, by telling a story. <laughs> like, the story is, is everything in teaching someone something. Right? Um, that's why I often in catechesis, I tell stories, right? Because they're fun and they're engaging and you sort of see the point and you think, oh, that's really neat. And you learn a whole new language, right? Learning to speak theologically or learning the language of faith is learning a new language. Um, 
and so this this idea that you tell a story is really important. Um, you know, any think about any child. You know, what do they want? What's what's like their favorite thing of ever? Yeah, tell me a story. Sit down and read to me. Read me a book. Right. Um, I've got I've got kids who love TV, but if you say let's turn off the TV and we'll read a book together, they're like, oh yes, let's that's much better. <laughs> we want we definitely want to read a book, uh, and so the Jews knowing this know that if you if you write the story, write out this this story of of, of the law and the giving of the law, and and how it came into being, then children will memorize it. It'll make sense. Um, so this is how it's done, and it's it's this instruction. In fact. Um, uh, Jews for many centuries have put honey on the tongues of their children before they teach them. So that they identify bodily the law with sweetness, which is an amazing tool, right? Um, it, it really is an amazing, amazing thing that you can do that. Okay, so when did God give his law? After delivering his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, God established a covenant with them by giving him his, them his law through Moses. Um, elsewhere in the Catechism, or maybe in a previous uh, uh, version, uh, the law is given audibly and awesomely uh, to Moses. Um, but actually, it's an interesting thing. When you get to Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are contained in the, in the account of Exodus, they're also in Deuteronomy 5, which is Moses kind of reminiscing about his days. Uh, and... and giving the people final instruction. Um, it happens immediately following the Exodus. They, they traipse around in the, in the wilderness, and, and God speaks to them from the mountain, the whole nation assembled at the base of the mountain. Um, he speaks to them audibly. And in the end of this account, uh, the people beg Moses. They're like, don't let him speak to us anymore, because we're going to die if we keep having to hear this word. Um, and so Moses, you know, says to God, you know, can you can you keep it down, please? Like, you know, we I, we really want to hear what you have to say, but uh, but they don't want to. They're going to die. They think they're going to die if they hear it. And so God says, well, come on up the mountain, and we'll we'll talk. Uh, and the rest of the law is given there. But what sets apart the Ten Commandments, and this is often a big question for people, is they say, well, what's what's the difference between the Ten Commandments and the rest? Um, well, that's the big one: is that it's given audibly to the whole people. It's read audibly to them. Um, this is a, this is a distinction that's not without importance. Um, we we have this kind of idea that all laws are important, that all laws should be followed. Okay, fine. But what what are the really big ones? Like, and and you know, lawyers also know this. You know, there are crimes that are very rarely prosecuted, and there are crimes which are always prosecuted. Like. Always. Why? Because you can't get away with murder. Okay? You can get away with cheating on your taxes. You can get away with all kinds of things, right? But you can't get away with murder. If, you're, if you are um, arraigned for a murder, you're probably going to stand trial and unless you get a plea bargain or something like that. You're going you're gonna to bear the weight of it, for sure. Um, so what this is to say is that uh, there are distinctions in the law. There are absolutely distinctions in the law. There are laws that are very, very, very important. There are laws which are ritual in nature. There are laws which are kind of purity laws in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in that sense. And so when people say, like, well, you know, so fine, you know, you, sh you shall not commit adultery, but what's all this about, you know, uh, wearing linen or, you know, wearing, you know, it doesn't make sense. Like, why is that important and the other one's not? Well, 
Um, look, first, the very first distinction is that the Ten Commandments are read, are recited before the people audibly. That's why they're set apart in this, in this big way. Um, it's also why those commandments are inscribed on tablets. And you remember what happens with those tablets. Well, first of all, they're broken, right? Moses breaks them. He's written those, but later God writes them by his hand. Um, and those are placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And in fact, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is the, is the presence of God with the people um, as they wander through the wilderness. And in the temple, it's, it's the very presence of God. Um, now, what's on top of the law, on top of this box, the Ark of the Covenant? It's this thing called the mercy seat. It's got the two angels. They're covering their faces on either side. Um, well, you've seen Last Crusade, right? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's this mercy seat is where blood is sprinkled on the Day of Atonement every, every year. So there's this very tight connection between this life of ritual sacrifice and the law. The understanding is that you have to make expiation because of your violation of the law. Um, and you have to make that expiation before God. Um, this is a very primitive idea, and it's a very it's a very normal idea in human society. We're sort of trying to let go of it. We're sort of saying like, oh, well, that's clearly a bunch of garbage. But it, you know, look, the reality of it is that guilt has to be expiated, always. So how do you expiate guilt? Let me just give you, yeah, through sacrifice every time. It's look, there's this. No matter what people might say, I'm always going to say, like, look, anytime you feel guilty about something, anytime you have guilt, right? Anytime you accuse someone of being guilty, what must happen? There has to be an expiation. There always has to be. And what it means is the sense of um, out of there, there has to be a duty in the face of my own guilt. That's kind of the idea. And I'm either going to make it right, make amends, or those amends are impossible. They can't be made, right? I can't, you know, if I kill my neighbor's cow and I have no cow, right? I can't give him a cow, right? I have to find a way to expiate for that offense. Um, so the law provides ways to do that. Um, and at, at the very top end of this law is this idea that, well, you, you can, there are ways to, uh, to do that, that don't involve uh, uh, major offenses. Now, the law is pretty clear that you have to restore property to your, to your neighbor whom you've stolen from or you've killed their cow or whatever it is. And it gives specific instructions to, you know, if it happens in this way, then you have to do this. If it happens in this way, then you have to do this. But the law is also very cognizant of the fact that we violated God. And we have to make expiation for that. How the heck do we do that? Well, it brings up this whole idea of sacrifice. Um, and it's in sacrifices essentially you do the holy thing rather than the unholy thing that's all that sacrifice really means you just do the thing that's holy you do the thing that's set apart um, you offer meat on the altar uh, before you eat it like well why would you do that well because blood is holy to God the blood belongs to God you can eat the meat all you want but the blood belongs to God so in fact the Jewish idea is you sacrifice everything that you're going to eat ultimately because sacrificed on the altar of the temple. Um, the blood drains out, and then you have a barbecue, right? That's how it works. Um, and, and the idea is God gets the blood, we get the meat, okay? Uh, because the blood's sacred to God, uh, and, and the meat's for us. Um, but all that is to say that, that uh, 
it's hard for us to understand this because we live in a world where there's this sharp divide between the sacred and the secular. There's a sharp divide between the holy and the mundane. In ancient societies, and indeed in societies straight up till the well, really 14th century, 15th century, there is no divide between sacred and profane. There is no uh, divide between the mundane and the, and the, and the holy. Um, they operate in the same sphere. Um, and, and all of life happens in this, in God's universe. Like, no one understands that they could possibly do anything outside of God's world. Um, so that's the idea here, right? And, and, uh, and Christians have this as well, and we can talk about that as we go forward. Okay, but he establishes this covenant with them. Um, we've talked about covenant in the past. Uh, covenants are, uh, well, in, a, in essence, they're like contracts, essentially. Um, you enter into a contract with someone, uh, and in a sense, in the ancient world, a covenant means that we become part of the same family. Um, so it's, you know, the, the really cheap, cheap and dirty explanation I often give is like, okay, so I have a beautiful daughter, I have no sons. I need a son. <laughs> and you have many sons. I need one of them. <laughs> because I have to pass down my, my, my land to someone. I have really good grazing land in winter. You have really good grazing land in summer. Why are we doing this? This is, this is a terrible thing. Like We're not going to live if we don't do this. So what do we do? We say, you give me your son to be a husband to my daughter and I will let you graze your flocks on my land in winter. If you let me graze my flocks on your land in summer. Yeah. Deal. And you think, well, we're going to spit shake on it. No, 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 no. You got to get born that. Uh, you, you cut animals in half and you, you walk among the parts. That's how you enact a covenant. And what's, what, has, what, is, uh, what is exchanged here is not just sort of like, grazing rights. It's not like mineral rights. Um, this is why, again, we go back to property, right? Property is sacred. It, it, uh, it really does matter that this is mine and that's yours. Um, because we can enter into a covenant with one another whereby that property is maintained, but because we are now members of the same family, we bear it responsibly together because we, buy, we freely enter into this covenant. Okay, does that make sense? That's why, you know, and I really want to bring this to your attention because as, as kind of the, the radical left talks so much about, uh, you know, the, the abandonment of all ideas of property and contracts and all the rest is sort of like the evil patriarchy come to get us. It's like, no, it's just so wrong. It's so just dead. It's completely wrong, right? Um, property law, the ideas of property are written into scripture. Uh, this is not capitalism. This is like very primitive ideas, but they are very true, right? It's that you must have you must have some idea of who owns what, but you must also have the opportunity to willingly enter into a covenant with another. Okay. Now, three generations go by, and what happens? Well, every generation has to re-up the covenant, or what? It just kind of fizzles, right? Now, there's only one way to get out of a covenant. By the way, this is really fun. Somebody's got to die. That's it. So if I die and we're in a covenant, what do you get? Actually, the covenant's not canceled. You get everything. Because we're in that, it's meant to benefit the one. This is like a trust law, right? It's like if you're in a trust relationship, 
you know, and I die, where's the trust go? Because the beneficiaries of the trust. But see, in this one, the beneficiary is the trustee. It's the same thing, right? So, so what we have is we have this we have this situation where, just think in big terms. When we think about the new covenant, right? The old covenant is abolished through what? The death of Jesus, right? He dies, canceling that old covenant, right? It's just gone um, with its with all the rights and all the laws that are there, but. And he establishes a new covenant in place of the old, right? Which continues on much of it, but is is a is a new covenant of, of reconciliation um, rather than this uh, understanding. And of course, it's the same idea, right? It's a fulfillment of it, because the idea in the, in the Old Testament law is, "I will be your God, and you will be my people." This is the covenant with Abraham, right? And this is why Paul goes on and on and on in Galatians and Romans about why the first covenant with Abraham is the really important one, and the one that's with Moses is later, right? Because the one with Moses is, is this is this law given um, uh, as as a as an accessory to the previous. Right? So all of this is to say that that what happens in a covenant is this exchange of persons, right? Um, it's, it's characterized by statements such as, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, and Jesus ca characterizes this by saying things like, um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, and I will uh, pray the Father and he will send you another uh, 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 a, a counselor, a comforter. Okay, we good so far? Right. So uh, all law deals with covenants. Okay, that's really important. All law deals with these, these ideas of exchange of persons. Um, violations of covenants carry with them penalties, right? Uh, like either death or what? You, you got to make it up somehow. Like you got to figure it out. And, and so it's death, sacrifice, or restoration. Those are the only ways you can really stitch it up. Okay. How did Jesus summarize God's law? Jesus summarized God's law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we actually see this reflected in the, in the Ten Commandments, right? It's you love the Lord your God, which means that he alone is to be worshipped and adored. He alone, uh, that, that pretty much clears away the idol issue, right? <laughs> you love God alone, you can't have idols. Um, you love God alone, you'll keep the Sabbath. You love God alone, you'll hallow his name, all those things. Okay. But there's a deeper thing going on here too, which is that, what does it mean to love God? I mean, just sort of like having nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about God? Yeah, which is what? What is worship? It has something to do with that, but it's bigger than that. Yeah, worship, worship is basically... The, the gift of self. So worship means bringing yourself before God. That's, that's what it basically is. You, you, you make, a, make an offering of yourself, right? It's the language that Paul uses, like, um, you know, um, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? <laughs> this is to offer up the body before God. That's worship. Um, and we actually use this language in the prayer book, and regrettably it's gone away. We had a wedding here yesterday, and this language was not used. But, but there is language in the traditional marriage rite of, with my body I thee worship, all my worldly goods I endow. Right? It's this idea of you get all my body and you get all my stuff. Um, that's a covenantal language. 
Um, so the, the idea that we would love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, etc., um, as well as loving our neighbor as ourselves, means that the, the commandment is first vertical in orientation. It's to give yourself to God and then give yourself to your neighbor. Having given yourself to God, give yourself to your neighbor. Um, because there's a, there's a two-way identification in sacrifice always. Uh, the first is that you, um, you make it very clear whom the, uh, the, the, the offering belongs to, ultimately. But you also are showing that, it, that, it, that it's yours. So um, this actually happened in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish world. You would, uh, you would mark your first fruits with a red ribbon and send them up to the temple to be sacrificed. And it would have your name on it, right? Because it's, it's not just the general sacrifice of the people. It's my sacrifice that I'm offering um, because it's important that I actually own it. That's really key. All right. How did Jesus fulfill God's law? For our sake, Jesus fulfilled God's law by teaching it perfectly, submitting to it wholly, and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our disobedience. So there are three ways that, God, that Jesus fulfills God's law. The first is he teaches it perfectly. Um, this is a key thing. He teaches the whole law um, and teaches it, this word perfectly is a bit, is a bit odd, but, but I would say he teaches it in a fully grown manner. He teaches it in a mature way. Um, most specifically, Sermon on the Mount would be the place to turn you. Okay, submitting to it wholly. So it's pretty clear from the gospel accounts that Jesus kept the whole law, actually, uh, completely, without any, um, without any fault whatsoever. Unless you think that that sounds extreme, uh, the reality of it is that most Pharisees believed they'd kept the law entirely, to the letter. They, they, they had no guilt whatsoever. Um, but it was because they had a selective reading of the law. <laughs> it's because they, they were very, uh, very careful to keep the letter, but not the spirit of it. But Jesus kept it completely, submitted to it wholly, um, and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our disobedience. So again, violations of, the, of any law, this is kind of a fun legal idea, but look, violations of any law either require that you become, that you offer yourself to the justice which is coming to you, right? So that's prison, right? <laughs> it's, it's prison, it's fines, it's community service, it's whatever it is. You have to be, you have to be the expiation for your own guilt, okay, okay fine. Uh, the other possibility is that you, um, you, uh, you make restitution in some meaningful way and probably then some, right? So give me my money back with interest. Okay, well, if you do that, then we'll let you off the hook for going to prison. I'll be fine. Okay, so you have, to, you have to make restitution. Or there are things that you just can't possibly make right. There's no way to. You, you, I mean, I can't give you back your dead son whom I murdered, right? There's no way to do that. Um, one way to do it is to simply say, okay, well, what's done is done. I'm going to choose to forgive it. So one way to do it is you say, instead of making you bear the weight of it, I'm going to bear the weight of it, um, and I'm going to let it go. Because we all know this. We all know this, that in a legal dispute, what can happen? You just, you just cancel all the claims. All right, it's really not that complicated. You just say, well, this isn't really worth it. Like, this isn't worth it. So I'm just going to cancel it. I'm going to, I'm going to bear the weight of it. So all those are there, and, and, um, but you know, it's very interesting to me that the catechism mentions 
an atoning sacrifice on our, for our disobedience within the midst of teaching on the Ten Commandments. What's going on here? Well, it's this understanding that our guilt means that something's got to happen, right? Either we're going to be in prison, we're going to make restitution, now both of which are impossible, they don't work, or what's going to happen? God's going to eat the loss. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. And that's, and that's probably the, I mean, in terms of atonement, ways of speaking about atonement, there are lots of ways to talk about atonement. But the one that I would put before you is, is simply this, that, um, that God bears the expiation. He makes expiation. Right? That's kind of the really key way to put it. It's, and it's not that he's sort of ransoming us, ransoming us or, uh, or even in the, in the state of substitution. You know, it's like, well, well we, should be, we should be the ones crucified, but God does it anyway. And it's like, no, no, no. It's kind of like we can't, like even our own death wouldn't do the trick. There's something, there's something woefully inadequate about our own death. Um, but, but the idea that, that God would take upon himself the weight of, of our sin. Okay. All right. How can you obey God's law? As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law for me and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, God grants me the grace to love and obey his law. Um, we are instructed in the Scripture to love the law of God. That's a really key, um, key idea that... Um, if you love the law, well, you love the giver of it. Um, it's it's a it's an idea that's very counterintuitive to us today that we would ever love the law. But but think about it for a moment. Um, Paul actually says that he delights in the law in his in his in his inmost parts. But he also has a struggle with it, right? And you read Romans seven; he's got this big struggle with the law. Well, he loves it. What's the problem? He can't do it. So, so this, this answer here is so wonderful. It's as I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law. You have to trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law uh, for me and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's both a trust uh, and faith in, 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 um, in Christ, but it's also uh, to note that the power to live as God commands comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and as you do that, God grants me the, the grace to love and obey his law. All right, let's go one more. Why are you not able to do this perfectly? <laughs> Sin has corrupted human nature, inclining me to resist God, to ignore his will, and to care more for myself than for my neighbors. However, God has begun and will continue his transforming work in me and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. Okay. Sin has corrupted my human nature. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is the reality of, of sin and what it does. Um, it's not just that... Um, it's not, it's not just like, it's not just a tendency, right? It's not just like we tend towards sin. So there actually is this deep corruption. Um, this is what we talk about when we talk about what, what original sin is. It's a kind of deeply inherited corruption that means more death, more ignorance, more sin even. Um, I've come lately in life to believe deeply in the, in the realities of generational sin because I find that no matter how hard I strive against it, I'm still my father's son. And I'm still my drunken, drug addict grandson, grandfather's grandson, right? Uh, well, why? Because, because of the very nature of how sin is inherited. I didn't even know my great-grandfather, but that is still there. 
Um, didn't know my grandfather either. Okay, but all that is to say that this continues on. Um, but the, the basic nature of the disease is that we care more for ourselves than anything else. It's pride, right? The basic, basic characterization of the, of the fall is our pride. Um, and, and for the Christian, we say God begins this work of transformation. Um, and it is a work uh, of, well, transformation is actually the right word, right? We become something by grace that we're not by nature, which is actually not just better, it's God, right? We become partakers of the divine nature um, and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. So scripture uses a number of words for this, but transformation is one. Uh, metanoia is another, this idea of repentance. Uh, but then there's another one that I really love, which is anachinosis. It's to be renewed to a higher state. Um, this idea that um, instead of it just being like, oh, we're going to put you back to the way you were. No, better. Okay. So that's, that's the work of grace. All right. We'll pick up next week the First Commandment.